much as I am very much into modern technology, I've never quite got the hang of preaching with an iPad or anything like that. You have to bear with me while I get everything in the right place. Hopefully. It occurs to me, if you've been following what we've been doing this morning, that almost, and I stress almost, there's no need for a preacher. If you've been reading the words of the songs you've been singing, they're astonishing. They're the heart of the gospel. A gospel which promises something to us. And it promises that we can walk in freedom. My experience in ministry is that a very large number of Christians do not walk in freedom. And one of the reasons behind that is all tied up with today's story. Before I read it, though, I want to uh, remind you, uh, I think Andy described it as the difference between descriptive and prescriptive uh, language. Uh, This book of Genesis and this story of Jacob, not everything that happened was right. Not everything that Jacob did was right. What the writer is covering is is what actually happened. And therefore, to to draw spiritual parallels in the context of New Testament theology and uh, our standing in God through the blood of Jesus Christ, you have to be very careful. It's not just a simple matter of going chonk, chonk. All right? You're still with me? Okay, let's read it. It's long. Fasten your seatbelts. Make yourself comfortable. Put your recliner. No, don't do that. And uh, you'll be right. Genesis 31. Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude towards him was not what it had been. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. So Jacob sent word to Rachel and Leah to come out to the fields where his flocks were. He said to them, See that your father's attitude towards me is not what it was before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've worked for your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. If he said the speckled ones will be your wages, then all the flocks gave birth to speckled young. And if he said the streaked ones will be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked young. So God has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me. In the breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw that the male goats mating with the flock were streaked, speckled, or spotted. The angel of the Lord said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. And he said, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled, or spotted. For I have seen, them, I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. Then Rachel and Leah replied, Do we still have any share in the inheritance of our father's estate? Does he not regard us as foreigners? Not only has he sold us, but he has used up what was paid for us. Surely all the wealth that God took away from our father belongs to us and our children. So do whatever God has told you. Then Jacob put his children and his wives on camels. 
And he drove all his livestock ahead of him, along with all the goods he had accumulated in Paddan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. Moreover, Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean by not telling him, telling him he was running away. So he fled with all he had, crossed the river Euphrates, and headed for the hill country of Gilead. On the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled. Taking his relatives with him, he pursued Jacob for seven days and caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. Then God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream at night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead when Laban overtook him. And Laban and his relatives camped there too. Then Laban said to Jacob, What have you done? You've deceived me, and you've carried off my daughters like captives in war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so that I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of tambourines and harps? You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. You have done a foolish thing. I have the power to harm you, but last night the God of your father said to me, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now you have gone off because you long to return to your father's household, but why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered Laban, I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. But if you find anyone who has your gods, that person shall not live. In the presence of our relatives, see for yourself whether there is anything of yours here with me, and if so, take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the gods. So Jacob went into, sorry, Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he found nothing. After he came out of Leah's tent, he entered Rachel's tent. Now, Rachel had taken the household gods and put them inside her camel's saddle and was sitting on them. Laban searched through everything in the tent but found nothing. Rachel said to her father, Don't be angry, my lord, that I cannot stand up in your presence. I'm having my period. So he searched but could not find the household gods. Jacob was angry and took Laban to task. What is my crime? He asked Laban. How have I wronged you that you hunt me down? Now that you have searched through all my goods, what have you found that belongs to your household? Put it here in front of your relatives and mine and let them judge between the two of us. I have been with you for 20 years now. Your sheep and goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten rams from your flocks. I did not bring you animals torn by wild beasts. I bore the loss myself. And you demanded payment from me for whatever was stolen by day or night. This was my situation. The heat consumed me in the daytime and the cold at night, and sleep fled my eyes. It was like this for the 20 years I was in your household. I worked for you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks, and you changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands, and last night he rebuked you. Laban answered Jacob, the women are my daughters, the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine, yet what can I do today about these daughters of mine or about the children they have born? Come now, let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. He said to his relatives, gather some stones. So they took stones and piled them in a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jegar Sahadutha. And Jacob called it Galid. You can understand why. 
<coughs> Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. That is why he called it Galid. It was also called Mizpah because he said, may the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. If you ill-treat my daughters or if you take my wa- wives besides my daughters, start again, take any wives besides my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness between you and me. Laban also said to Jacob, here is, here is this heap and here is this pillar I have set up between you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will no, not go past this heap to your side to harm you and that you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. So the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac He offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal. After they had eaten, they spent the night there. Early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then he left and returned home. Have you lost the will to live yet? Uh, The thing about Jacob is he never ever seemed to make anything easy. And yet, everything he did was designed to try to make things easy. Uh, Everything he sort of twisted and bent, all his deceptive ways, which started right at the beginning and deceiving his his brother with his birthright and all that sort of stuff, all that kind of stuff was done as an easy way out, an easy way out, an easy way out, which simply got him into more trouble and more trouble and more trouble, so so he was deceiving more and deceiving more, and then, of course, he was being deceived by his father-in-law Laban. Who was right and who was wrong, do you think, between Jacob and Laban? Do you think Jacob was right for having this kind of ruse about making sure that all the lambs were spotty so that God would prosper him? Or do you think Laban was right in saying, uh, well, hang on a minute, I'll whisk all the lambs away and I'll demand this and I'll demand that and I'll change the rules? Of course, the answer is they were as bad as each other. So, let's just recap where we're at and there's a few things that I think are really important we need to learn we pick up the story Jacob's still working for Laban as a reward he has two wives one he wanted who gave him one child and one he didn't want who gave him more and maidservants for each of them had been given to him as well and as a result there were more children still his ways of ingrained deceit hadn't yet passed he's still still not straightforward He's just been conning Laban with regard to livestock to build up his own herd at Laban's expense. Laban's sons smell a rat. They had a fair idea that Jacob was pulling a fast one. And even Laban had become more offish with his son-in-law. So Jacob decides, and God obviously agreed, the Bible says that, that he should go back home. Go back to Canaan, go back to the land of his father Isaac. He told Rachel and Leah to get the whole family ready for the journey. But they kept Laban in the dark. Neither wives apparently felt loved with their original family, so they were willing. And Jacob was just a bit economical with the truth, for his re- with his reasons to his wives as to why he was going. Rachel's parting shot was to steal the household gods. Just press pause button there, and I want to remind you, Laban was no monotheist. He lived in a, a whole culture with many gods and many competing gods, of which the god of Abraham, which he'd heard about, was one in his mind. So th- there'd be many sort of little statuey things and all that sort of stuff around. Now, maybe Rachel was still like this, or maybe they were valuable, and she was just pinching that which was valuable, 
Or maybe she just wanted to spite her father. Nobody knows. Anyway, they go. Don't tell Laban. Laban finds out, chases after them. When he catches up, he accuses Jacob of sneaking away when he would have sent him away with celebration. Yeah, right. You know, it, it, again, it's all, all this game they're playing between the two of them. Now, remember, of course, Jacob did not know about the God theft. So he was very eager to point out that he'd only taken what belonged to him, even though some of it was accumulated dubiously. In most cultures, the time of the woman's menstruation was a time to regard her as unclean, so the only place Laban didn't look was where the gods were hidden. And eventually, this covenant was made, the, you know, the, 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 the heap and the pile, and the, whatever, <clears throat> and they eventually agreed to respect each other's territory and uh, basically not interfere with each other. Laban goes back home, and Jacob carries on. Oh. But as you will find out, in future weeks, it's frying pan to fire. He's just sorted out Laban. He's now going to meet Esau, the one he wronged in the first place. Yeah, you know, it's, it's incredible stuff. This just—it would make an epic, epic, epic film if you did the whole thing in detail. Now, what do we learn about this, which is remotely applicable to us today as Christian believers? Because what we—what the Old Testament is there for, besides pointing to Jesus and trying to create a platform of understanding for the gospel, it, it's there to help us understand the uh, timeless nature of God and how He deals with people. And the first thing is this: God still works in dysfunctionality and tension. If there's one thing we should have grasped from this story of Jacob right the way from its beginning is that God is sovereign. And he will work out his purpose in the end, even through unlikely and undeserving people, even total ratbags like Jacob was. He will. He doesn't put everything on hold until we get our act together. In his purposes for the wider sphere, he'll use whoever he wants to use. Now, if I, <clears throat> if I suddenly say those immortal words, Donald Trump... And look across the congregation, I will see, well, I won't tell you what I'll see, but <clears throat> it could vary from, he's not so bad, you know, to, oh, oh, you know. Do you know, according to the Bible, there's not one leader comes to power without God being in that for a purpose, for some reason? Yeah? It's the point I'm making. God, God will do what God will do. He knows what he's doing. He doesn't always tell us. In 36 years of ministry, I've had to try to help some very dysfunctional people. It's been a joy to see messed up lives become sorted out by obedient response to God's grace and mercy. But some have been very hard work. And we are all still a work in progress, even you and me. The church leaders who get panicky unless they feel in control, I've met quite a few of those, none here of course. <clears throat> the Christians who have to learn that they can't get by by saying one thing to one person, something totally different to somebody else. And you'd be surprised how many of those there are. The youth leader who thinks child protection protocols don't apply to him. The Christian lady who believed she could spend her time innocently flirting with men without it possibly affecting her marriage. All this is just the tip of an iceberg. Dysfunctional Christians. People who do know the Lord, people who are seeking to walk with him, but still haven't got it together. <clears throat> still, still have such a lot to learn. 
Astonishingly, God hasn't waited until they were all sorted out before using them to bless others. Isn't that amazing? I know, <clears throat> I know of Christian leaders who at present have turned their back on the Lord and yet people have come to know the Lord through their ministry. How does that work? So if a Christian leader blows it, does that mean all those converts aren't really Christians? Of course not. It doesn't work like that. God has used many a preacher, famous perhaps, who's been living a lie morally, even at the time they were being used by God. Because the Bible's very clear, the gifts of God are, are irrevocable. He doesn't take those gifts away. He does expect us to walk with him so we use them wisely. I share none of this to defend wrong living. That's not the point. The individuals concerned have had to learn and still will have to learn the hard lessons. And in many cases, those things which have brought their world crashing down around them will in the end be that which brings them back to where they should be with God. That's what we pray for. The call is still to obedient discipleship. But it does not negate the blessings of past years and what God has done. He works through dysfunctional people. Hallelujah. Isn't that good? He works through Regent Chapel. Am I suggesting Regent Chapel is dysfunctional? <laughs> At times, yes. Because I'm in it. And you're in it. The second thing that comes out of this is that our example affects others. Was Rachel deceitful before she met Jacob? There's a question. Answers in the back of a postcard. Maybe. Maybe. But his example didn't help. We like to read the Ten Commandments. Well, maybe. We like to read the Ten Commandments. What we don't often read is uh, in, in Exodus 20, verse 4, which says, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents, the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Ooh. Ooh, we don't like that, do we? And yet, in some respects, and I'm not suggesting I understand it all, in some respects, it's perfectly understandable. Where do our children learn their moral values from? Where does each generation pick up its way of behaving from? The answer is the previous generation. And very often, that which a generation has battled with, a person has battled with, their offspring will battle in the same areas. Very often, because they've been given all the wrong signals about how to deal with it. Of course, it's not inevitable just want to say that. We live in the days of grace. This is not a sort of legalistic, oh, well, you know, if you knew what my dad was like, oh, I'm finished, I'm done. You know, it's not that. Because grace opens the door to change, but we need, as Christian people, to be aware of the heritage that goes before us, the negatives as well as the positives, so that we can make the choice of saying, uh, actually, on this ground, my father, whoever was wrong, and I make the choice. But if you don't believe it's possible... This dysfunctional bloke called Jacob was to be the father, or was the, was the father, of Joseph. And although he had a few oddities in his younger day being in how he communicated his dreams, Joseph was a man of integrity, a man who would not give in, who would not be deceitful. 
It can be broken by the grace of God. But we need to be aware that we are examples. Those of us who have the privilege of leading in, in any way in church life must also take note. Churches have a habit of throwing up people who are like their leaders. It's quite funny. Um, <clears throat> lovely man who, who uh, married Betty and I and uh, under God, thanks to him, I, I entered ministry. He had a, a habit when he was preaching of doing that. You know? and as a young preacher, I began to find myself doing this. I thought, whoa, stop that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's a trivial example, but we forget what, what we are. We are an example to others whether we like it or not. Those in our charge who find bad language an easy way out will justify it if they see it in us. If they see bitterness and unforgiveness as the norm of Christian behavior, they will go on believing that that is how they should respond. And the same goes for judgmentalism, the same goes for anything goes, it doesn't matter as long as, as, long as you love God, everything's fine, all that sort of stuff. To be frank, we are all examples whether we like it or not. The question is of what? What are you an example of? Interesting question, isn't it? People say it doesn't matter what people do privately or what they think. But actually what we do in the privacy of our own rooms and what we think in our minds is what molds us into being who we are and what affects our behavior when we're with other people. It's inevitable. And it's scary. Yeah. The final thing I want to say, though, is uh, perhaps the main issue which comes from this passage. And I need to give a little health warning. <clears throat> because... What I want to share now is at the very root of what it is to live as a Christian in the freedom that Jesus has won for us. And it is illustrative of what holds us back so often. It's simply this, issues have to be faced. Before we can move on with God, before we can get back to where we should be with God, we have to face the issues of the past. Now, Marker number one, if anything I touch on in the next few minutes begins to try to prize open stuff that you've long since dealt with with, uh, with, with God, don't let it, okay? This doesn't apply to you in those areas. If you've dealt with something, you've laid it with God's feet, it's done, dusted over, don't, don't let me start digging up that sort of stuff. But if it hasn't been dealt with, then this is, this is relevant. Jacob tried to avoid the Laban confrontation by leaving without telling him. But there was no way to avoid it. He also knew fine well, uh, or was certain to learn, learn at least, that very soon he was going to have to face the issue of Esau and stare down that problem of his wrongdoing and what he'd done. God does not take us forwards from unresolved disobedience. He does not do it. He only takes us in a full circle to face the same issue again. Because God cares more about your walk with him than he does about your agenda. God saves us by his grace, grace alone. But the goal of that grace is salvation and holiness of life. 
He is in the process of sanctifying us and will not allow us to sweep issues under the carpet and pretend all is well. And if we're serious about being in the center of God's purpose, if we're serious about knowing God's forgiveness and all that sort of stuff, that which comes from grace, it must be worked out in the choices we make. To the woman caught in adultery, Jesus said that he didn't condemn her, but that she should go and sin no more. Grace doesn't give us permission not to change. I quite liked that when I, when I typed it out, so I'll repeat it, okay? Grace does not give us permission not to change. If we have wronged someone, we need to seek to put it right by acknowledging it and seeking forgiveness. Sometimes that might even involve restitution. Over the years, I've come across couples attending church who have, for whatever reason, left their previous partners, the husbands and wives. And the couple see the new church as a new start, and it really can be that, but only where wrongs have been faced and where necessary full repentance has taken place. Otherwise, the issue just carries on and carries on and becomes a corrupting influence in the life of the church. Without it, there's a real danger of that, that spread. There are many other examples I could give you, but let me tell you a story about a dear man. He was an, an, we made him an elder in my first church, first church of which I was minister. We were trying to establish an eldership, and uh, he was one of the guys I wanted to be an elder. And he said, um, some of you will have heard this before, he said, I'll only al allow my name to go forward if I can tell them my story. And he told the story of how a few years before, he'd left his wife, uh, gone off with someone else, and turned his back on Christian faith, and went to America. And it was three years in America before God blitzed him, turned him inside out, brought him to his knees. Astonishingly, and this doesn't, you know, I'm not pretending this is a simple answer because this is a rare outcome. Astonishingly, his wife had waited and prayed and waited and prayed. And he came home. And she took him back. And here, about three years later, I wanted him to be an elder in the church. Hmm. So he told his story. And there wasn't a dry eye on the place, as you can imagine. You see, the grace of God works when we apply it to real situations. Otherwise, it's just a word we hide, hide behind. The, the real toughies of life, where we've wronged somebody we know, or, or in the workplace maybe, we haven't behaved as we ought, and somebody has suffered as a result. All, all these things have to be faced. And the reason they have to be faced is ever so simple. God wants us to be free. They don't have to be faced so we have to go through agony. Oh, yes, I deserve it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, God wants to beat me up and all that sort of stuff. That's not the issue at all. God knows that until we face those issues that would hold us prisoner, we will never be free of them. We will never be in that position where we can stand up strong, lift our heads up again, and walk without fear and without guilt and without shame because that's, the, that's what Jesus died for that you and I can, can walk in, in total freedom. For freedom, Christ has set us free, the Bible says. But we get so wrapped up in ourselves, and we think like Jacob, we can do it a better way. 
if I, if I duck and weave here and pretend here, and then, then I'll, I'll sort of come out the other side. Nobody knows about that, and, and I, I can be this wonderful Christian, and we're dragging this ton weight around with us all the time. And God's saying, come on, just come to me. Let's deal with it properly. You don't have to drag the weight around. That's what grace does. This is the place of grace. C.S. Lewis said this. Repentance. Oh, by the way, did you know the first word Jesus said when he began his public ministry was repent? Did you know that? Just sort of flag that one. C.S. Lewis says, repentance is simply a description of what going back to him is like. If you ask God to take you back without it, you are really asking him to let you go back without actually going back. It can't happen. This is the place of grace. God wants us to face the issues and where appropriate, acknowledge them. Sometimes publicly, but only if there's a particular reason. And to seek forgiveness. He wants us to be able to go home in freedom. He wants us to walk without fear. He wants us to be unshackled from our foolish disobedience. He wants a church full of strong people who are strong because they have faced their own weaknesses and cried out to him for strength. He doesn't want a church full of people who pretend they've never made a mistake. They've never got it wrong. Those are weak people. If God can take the deceiver Jacob and make him Israel and the father of his chosen people, then he can take us and make us astonishingly beautiful for him. He brings us to the place of personal honesty only that he might set us free because his heart is for us. I'm very fond of a particular genre of music, but I'm not going to sing to you, so don't worry. But there's a song within that genre. I'll read the two verses and then the chorus. So long I had searched for life's meaning, enslaved by the world and my greed, then the door of my prison was opened by love, for the ransom was paid, I was freed. Second verse, I'm free from the guilt that I carried, from the dull, empty life I'm set free, for when I met Jesus, he made me complete. He forgot the foolish man I used to be. And the chorus is what I like. I'm free from the fear of tomorrow. I'm free from the guilt of the past. For I've traded my shackles for a glorious song. I'm free, praise the Lord, free at last. Now I need to ask you the question. Are you free? Really? It's the way God wants you to be. He really does. If you think I'm, I'm making this up, let me read you a few verses. Uh, Jesus said, the truth will set you free. He is the truth. John says, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. He has freed us from our sins by his blood, the Bible says. Free, free, free. The devil doesn't want you free. The devil wants you feeling guilty. He wants you weighed down. He wants you, yeah, you're a Christian. you you know, you're forgiven, you put trust in Jesus Christ, hallelujah. But the devil doesn't want you to walk in that. He wants you to walk in defeat. And Jesus came to set you free. There's one more song I want to read to you. Treasured possession. My Salvation Army songbook, which I got when I was in the Sunday school in the Salvation Army. Okay, my mother was talking about this song uh, when I was with her this week. And it made me realize how relevant it was to this morning. An old general of the Salvation Army, long since gone, 
in heaven now, was a master poet, wonderful poet. His name was Albert Osborne. And a lot of, he wrote some great songs. Um, let me read. Uh, when it refers to, it's poetic language. So when it refers to the hill, it's talking about Calvary. It's talking about the cross. It's talking about the sacrifice of Jesus for us. This is what he says. When shall I come unto the healing waters? Lifting my heart, I cry to thee in prayer. Spirit of peace, my comforter and healer, in whom my springs are found, let my soul meet thee there. Second verse, wash from my hands the dust of earthly striving. Take from my mind the stress of secret fear. Cleanse thou the wounds from all but thee far hidden. And when the waters flow, let my healing appear. Light, life, and love are in that healing fountain. All I require to cleanse me and restore. Flow through my soul, redeem its desert places, and make a garden there for the Lord I adore. And the chorus simply is, from a hill I know, healing waters flow. Arise, Emmanuel's tide, and my soul overflow. Far too many Christians live life at the knowledge of what they know to be true and think that's all that the Christian gospel has to offer. The Christian gospel has to offer that and the experience of what Jesus has won for us by the Spirit of God setting us free in the daily walk of joy for him. It's costly because it means we have to choose his way, not ours. And that brings us to repentance. And that brings us to dealing with the issues we have to face. Let me pray, then I'll hand over. Father, you're so good. You love us so much. And you want us to be free. I just ask, Lord, that by your spirit you would hover in this room and bring the application to individual hearts who need to hear that word from you that you want to set them free and then grant them the grace to respond I pray and meet with us all that we might keep short accounts and make sure our walk is clear in Jesus name Amen